Should I interest you in a stamp? Yeah, give me a stamp. Oh. No, give me a purple one. Oh, I'm sorry we haven't any purple ones. I could uh, paint one for you. I don't want a painted one. person hasn't got any rights in this country anymore. The government even tells you what color stamps you gotta buy. Live from Grinnell's and Fox Bar and Grill, come for the Hawaiian pizza, stay for the fake cannoli. This is the award-winning stamp show here today. If you can dream it, we can collect it. This is episode number 330, I think. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center and nonprofit 501c3 Corporation for the Advancement of Philately. This is Cash. This is Mark. This is Albert. This is Becca. This is Jim. And uh, we're going to be talking about Grinnells and Foxes. Um, but first, I got a uh, email and another person got a message also about the signatures on the bottoms of certificates. Now, whether it's from PSE or the PF or the APS or anybody else, actually not everybody else, because if you uh, use good Mr. Crow, he signs the bottom of his, and he is actually the expert. However, the signature on the bottoms of the certificates are not the experts that looked at the stamps, those are, generally speaking, the people who are in charge of the organization. So, like, uh, in the case of PSE, Scott Murphy is the signer, and he's the finalizer, and he checks everything. But he is not the expert that generally looks at everything. And the same thing with Larry Lyons at the PF. We Everybody relies on experts that are within the purview of the stamp being looked at to be the expert, and then they review the expertization and uh, consolidate the opinions and the like. So like uh, here at PSE, Albert is the expert, probably the expert in the entire country on Hawaii and Canal Zone and Philippines and you know some of the, the possessions, the US possessions. But you're never going to see his actual signature on a certificate. Might see you might see my initials on a stamp though, like the National Bank of the American Banknote Company specimens. Yeah, that's true. I actually have one of Albert's uh, certificates that has his name on it. Oh, from who? From the PF. Yeah, one of the early PF and APS certificates have multiple signatures. Yes. Yeah, that's way back when. Uh, <laughs> and the reason why they discontinued that is that. You know, a person would have their signature on the bottom, and uh, PSE actually had three signatures on the bottom of the certificate. And they'd find these people, and they'd walk up to the person and go, "Hey, 
my stamp. Why'd you get, and you know, this person probably, you know, certified a thousand stamps. And they go, well, how the hell am I supposed to remember that stamp? But, you know, they were getting quizzed and everything about the stamps. Now, generally speaking, of course, dealers know what's going on. But if you are a first time submitter and then all of a sudden you see the person someplace, you go, hey, you gave me you, you remember that number 207 that you uh, certified. Uh, it must have been about eight months ago. And uh, you look at him and go, no, have no clue whatsoever. <laughs> a very an elderly English dealer at the 1986 Chicago International came up to me and he, with a bunch of Canal Zone first issues and said, who's this guy Chang that killed all my stamps? And so I had to give him a lesson. And he said, but, but my dad bought them at the time. And I said, the problem was the post office would only sell you 25 cents worth of stamps at a time unless you were... You were some sort of a bigwig, like you were the you worked for the medical corps or something like that, and so that's why the fake stamps were created and used at that time. Yeah. Oh well, I mean the old story about the person who said, you know, these stamps have to be valuable. They came out of an old collection. And I said the age of the collection rarely has a determinant on the value, and he goes, yeah, but he was a really really old collector, and I said. The age of the actual collector has even less <laughs> impact on the value of a collection. <laughs> so, today we're going to speak about the Grinnells and Mr. John Fox. You want to talk about the Grinnells first, the whole story? And for those, you go over real quick what the Grinnells are, but the interesting part is the lawsuit. Well, the Grinnells are a, a group of, uh, of Hawaii, alleged Hawaiian missionary stamps. Those are the first stamps of Hawaii, um, the two cent, the five cent, and then two different types of 13 centers that originally were first, uh, the earliest usage is, from, is 1850 and the last usage is about 1854. And a group of these were found by a guy who was a philatelist named George Grinnell and um, he went through somebody else and sold them, uh, sold them to John Kleeman, who was the president of Nassau Stamp Company, in 1920 for $65,000. And they were uh, stamps on pieces and stamps that were uh, uh, multiple, sta multiple stamps on pieces and individual stamps. And, uh, um, and after they were closely examined, there was a lawsuit filed, and uh, they were determined to be counterfeit. But um, there was a lot of, there was, um, and these stamps have been examined at least half a dozen times since then and discussed. The key thing is, is that among the things that, that the uh, Hawaii Book Project from 1984 on that is um, edited, that was headed by Fred Gregory and Wally, Wally Beardsley figured out was, um, there were, for instance, there were three or four different cancelers for the Hawaiian, um, Hawaiian U.S. Hawaii U.S. postage paid cancel, and also for the Hawaii, uh, the Honolulu Hawaiian Islands cancel, and none of none of the cancellations that are on the Grinnells are the right type, are the correct ink, and they don't have the correct spacing of so. Um, and then Mystic Stamp Company in around 19, 2016, I guess, did two pamphlets, and uh, or did one pamphlet trying to uh, trying to trying to uh, 
make these stamps genuine, and uh, they were basically uh, fought off by the longtime experts on these stamps. I was going to say that it was 2006 because it was at the Washington show that I picked up those pamphlets, and Mystic was arguing that they were um, a different printing, essentially. They... Um, as as opposed to, uh, you know, like a different setting, because it's obvious when you look at the stamp side by side, they they are not the same stamp. Well, they're assuming that the uh, they they made a completely different plate or something, because right. and that's not that's not cons- that's not normal when you look at the usage of those plates. Not only the not only the uh, missionary stamps, but then the the numeral stamps that that were used from 1859 to 1865. Those stamps, they, they moved around the settings, but it was mm-hmm. the same. You can see the, the way that we plate them is because they, the settings remain the same. They get altered right. slightly. They get moved around, but it's, they're not throwing away type that they, that they can, you know, it's not that common to find in Hawaii. Well, it was like reading about a lawsuit where you have two opposing points of view, and the preponderance of evidence comes down on forgery because, like you said, the, with the techniques we have now versus in 1922 when they had the trial, um, the scientific tests pretty much show that they don't, they aren't the same device. They're forgeries. In, um, at the Honolulu Advertiser sale in 1995, there was a small reference group of documents that were printed mostly in New England. They were checks and things like that, but the but the ornaments were the same ornaments that mm-hmm. were found on the numer- on the excuse me on the missionary stamps. I bought that lot, and if you uh, you look at it closely and then you compare the, the, the Grinnells, there's just no comparison. All right. So there was, uh, do you think, well, first of all, I think it was interesting that they, for a while, there was an argument that they were real. To, but there, Well, actually, there were two arguments. There was one argument which was at the court case, and then there's another one that just came up in 2016. Or is 2006. 2006? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Tell us about the original court case, though, because that has some interest, too. Can, can I just make an observation before you go on? Um, Grinnell sold these for $65,000 in 1920. The inverted CA3A, the whole sheet, sold for $20,000 two years before that. So that gives you an idea of how much he was paying for these uh, Hawaiian missionary stamps. And according to the internet, the purchasing power of sixty-five thousand dollars in nineteen twenty is about nine hundred thousand dollars today. All right. Well, he thought he was getting a he thought he was getting a great deal. Yeah, yeah, because he was getting forty cut three stamps or something like that. And Cleveland was and Cleveland including wasn't, what four or five number two, uh, two centers. Yeah. Yeah, Cleveland, but John Cleveland was a very exper- experienced dealer, mm-hmm. and so what he did is he consulted his he consulted the other experts in the field at that time, guys like uh, guys like uh, uh, Admiral Harris, and uh, uh, I think he he also talked to uh, Crocker and uh, several other people who were really knowledgeable at the time, and they gave depositions that just said that these aren't real. Uh, one of the problems with all missionaries is, is they're printed on basically like tissue paper, so they're all mostly damaged. So, uh, but uh, but the court basically found for the plaintiff, Mr. Cleveland, and he got his money back. 
And I guess the family ended up with the stamps, some of the stamps, and I guess the Shattucks ended up with some of the stamps. And uh, uh, I, know that I, th I know that Thurston Twig Smith, who was the owner of the Honolulu Advertiser collection, he, in his sale, they sold a stamp that was allegedly a, a Grinnell, but it was proven later on not to be one. And that stamp brought like $4,000, so there's a lot of interest in just w wonderful fakes. Yep. But not, not, not $900,000 worth of high <laughs> right. power. Um, the, the, the court transcript is actually easily found if you go to the American Philatelic, uh, the research library because it's uh, included in uh, the American Philatelist at the time and also in the newspapers, at the philatelic newspapers at the time. Yeah. And, and in that 100 years or 80 years span, um, these were examined two or three different times. They would come back up and somebody would uh, be a proponent for them and somebody, and the British Museum had them in 2006. I think they were still hadn't issued their opinion uh, in writing. Well, at the time they did the pamphlets, but they they compared the copies they had in their museum. Yeah, they have they have the Taplin collection. Right, and but, they said they were fake too. Well, the the, the Taplin collection is a very interesting thing because it was a collection that was built in the 1870s and 80s and 90s. For Mr. Taplin died, and I believe it was 95, and it's been it's remained intact. Um, the one thing that the one thing I will say is that I had the pleasure of uh, David Beach, who's the keeper of the collection of at the British Library, um, had me allowed me to look at these stamps pretty closely, even with the even with the black light. So it was very it was fun to see stuff that I would normally not see because they're in an institution. But uh, no, they, these stamps did not look anything like the Grinnells. Yeah. I've I've seen them side by side, and I agree with that. I mean, it would be, it, it's, a, it's a nice story, but one of the problems with a lot of fakes is that they're, they make nice stories, but they, you can't prove that they're real. <laughs> just, like, just, like, um, um, just like a lot of, uh, a lot of Western Express covers. You can't, you can't trace the brooding, and therefore you can't prove that it's real. So if, if you can't prove it, then the, the feeling is in general that it's not, it's not real. Yeah. Unless, unless you find something that, fits that bill that's in it you, you, you if something comes up later I, I suppose we've made changes on our, our opinions based on another example being found but the idea of on covers for example we talked about that um, in another podcast and that basically what we do is we look at to certify a cover we look we look at the cover and Say okay, uh, if this is real, what would it look like? Wh how would it have traveled, and so forth? And if you can do that, then you can um, pretty much say it's real. Or you can look at it and say, okay, if I was going to fake this, what would I make it look like? Now people wonder why they're they're mostly all defective. Um, the one thing we found out is the first postmaster general of Hawaii, who's Henry Whitney, who also later founded the um, Honolulu Advertiser newspaper. He actually tore the stamps off the off the covers because he was just using the stamps as a bookkeeping thing. Um, I own the earliest known um, cover. It was uh, pictured in the Ashbrook Special Service back in the in the 40s. It has just literally about a quarter of the stamp at the bottom, 
and you can tell when you put it under a black light that the cancel was just literally just um, just pen strokes in a circle because it, it went through the paper and onto the onto the cover. But it's a December 1850 cover that um, that uh, that I purchased. Or I traded with a with a collector in Hawaii many years ago just to say that I had it. But uh, um, there are a number. There are probably six or seven covers like that where it does have a it does have a piece of the missionary. But it, it it's that's all there is a small piece. And and back when you acquired that cover, you didn't know that they were tearing the stamp off. We just thought that the stamps had been removed by postal patrons and that they were damaged. And now we know that, no, that was exactly how they were used. I mean, the rarest multiple is the strip of three of the 13 Center that's now in the National uh, uh, Postage Museum at the Smithsonian. Um, that was in the advertiser sale, and they, they Twig Smith donated... Uh, donated about a million dollars worth of stuff so they bought it um, at the sale particularly for me who was, I was the underbidder on that lot I wanted to buy it and get it conserved yep so there is another lawsuit that has a story to it and this one has to do with a famous faker again and Grinnell was not a faker Grinnell was just the person who had the stamps this person actually did do some faking, though. His, uh, so tell us a little bit about Mr. John Fox. Well, John A. Fox was the president of the American Stamp Dealers Association. He was a very prominent, he was probably the most important stamp dealer in the 50s. Um, he had, he sold private, he put sold private treaty and he had his own auction. And, uh, he got into he got into trouble in the early '60s because he bought a he bought a Confederate collection from an estate that he had been referred to, and he paid a small amount of money for it. I don't I can't quote exactly how much he paid, but he had the first sale of the material, and this, the material that he sold brought like three times or four times what he had paid for it. So the heir sued in court and won triple damages. And so. Uh, um, all of a sudden, Mr. Fox owned, owed a lot of money, and um, a, a number of uh, a number of very very good fakes were made to kind of help pay for his problems, um, both in uh, both really great Confederate fakes and really great classic U.S. fakes, and uh, they have a category at the Philatelic Foundation called Fox fakes, and they actually a lot of them are now in Operation Scrap, which was the stuff that was donated to the Philatelic Foundation. But it's amazing to see the quality of the, his fakes. And everybody who's done covers at one time or another has been victimized by his stuff. Because even if, even if you're really good, sometimes you miss something. And I can't, t I can't tell you on every single thing what it is. A lot of times it's simply it's, it's what Ashbrook taught us, which is, does a rate fit? In other words, if it doesn't match, there was... Um, there was a large group of uh, 1869 covers in the uh, Harmer Shaw sale in January that were, uh, that um, um, I don't know if they were Fox fakes, but they were certainly fakes that, that were pictured years ago because some were in the Gibson sale and some were, uh, some were in the Knapp sale in 1941 because they had the hand stamps and they actually had the lot numbers on them. But they were, uh, but the rates didn't match, and they had some had Ashbrook notes on them saying this is this is this is uh, this doesn't match any kind of rate, and so it's counterfeit. 
Yeah, I know you tried to purchase that lot. Yeah, well, I tried to purchase it to, to donate it. To I was going to... You always try to take fake things off the market, but it's not always possible. I used to try to buy anything that was a fake overprint out of off the market until the Plast sale when a fake two-cent Puerto Rico overprint uh, went for $12,500, and I wasn't going to invest any more of my money on that. And when it sold, when it sold about when it sold about 12 years ago, um, they, they said, "Didn't you know it was fake?" And he said, "Well, Chang Chang bit on it, and he didn't understand that I was just trying to take it off." Because <laughs> <laughs> I had taken, I had removed, I had removed at least a dozen things off off the catalog listing because I proved that the item that was the listing copy was counterfeit. But I, I took pictures of most of those covers. Well, it's a, it was wasn't it fascinating? Yeah, and you know that uh, you know that somebody is going to be you know do I have a deal for you? Right. Well, <laughs> here's a, there's there's two th- things that are really concerning concerning us uh, or disconcerting, and one is the um, fact that Mr. Fox handled an awful lot of legitimate covers, and so just because it came from him doesn't necessarily mean it's one of the fakes. So that's a real hard thing, you know. And stuff that's signed by him doesn't mean that it's fake. Right. A lot, of, the, a lot of his stuff that has as an actual signature is real. Real. And the second thing of that is that the, some of the fakes are so good that they were in um, collections that generally carry uh, provenance in an auction like you're talking about. Um, now, Nap. In '41, that probably precedes John Fox. No, but I can think of a lot of a lot of prominent collectors from the '50s and '60s yes. and '70s. Yeah. I know I know John Pope owned a lot of stuff that turned out to be counterfeit. Yeah. He was the ex-husband of Elizabeth Pope, who later on uh, became a, uh, became very prominent as a vice president at Robert A. Siegel Auction Galleries. But uh, I, I can think of I, any of the really important collectors from that time. The name sales. There were always something that was bad. Mm-hmm. He made fake. He made lots of fake Civil War patriotics. He had the canceling devices. I know I've been victimized on a couple of them. That's why I actually send them in to get certified because. And then when I get it back saying that it's a Fox fake, I go, I go, well, what did I miss? Right. A lot of times, is and his uh, he had great knowledge on inks, but one of the things that's ha- that's happened is with the. Uh, with the increase in scientific examination of stuff, especially putting uh, covers under different different frequencies of ultraviolet light or infrared light, some of the counterfeits come right out. But uh, I can think of a lot of strips of five of uh, Confederate States number three, and Confederate States number uh, the eight. The uh, I guess it's number eight, which uh, he made up because the stamps were readily available, and he made up the covers and sold them. And then uh, a number of times he would actually handle the stuff. They would consign it to his auction, and he'd sell it to somebody else. <laughs> so that's propagating the fake. Yeah. And so it was. Part- it gives it a provenance. Makes it tough. It's partially that's partially why Operation Scrap was started at the Philatelic Foundation to take that stuff off the market. But there is a limit on what anybody is willing to put up because you know if that lot that that lot that brought what. Five thousand or six thousand. It brought yeah. It, it, it brought real brought, money. It brought real money. It was, I was willing to pay twenty five hundred dollars to take it off the market. I thought that was a, 
you know, I think I bid it up to 3,500 or 4,000 and I quit. And I said, I just don't have the patience and I, I'm putting up my money to basically donate it. Mm -hmm. So, um, but um, John A. Fox was, was very active in the stamp business until he died. He had an office in Floral Park, New York. Um, my understanding is, is that now he was the only auction house, the only auction that I went to that had a, had a uh, happy hour after the auction. He would actually he would actually have open a bar and, and do that. Cool. And but that was that was actually outlawed by the state of New York years ago. No. Because because uh, uh, art auctions used to do that. Yeah. And then somebody sued because they said, well, when I was bidding on this million dollar painting, I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, the thing is, that started. He, well, I mean, he may have started for other reasons, but. He bought a collection and paid less than its market value and then found and probably when he purchased it, to be fair, you don't know what the market value of an item is until you actually put it on the market. But what killed him was treble damages because they I guess they found that he did it maliciously. And they wanted to penalize him for it. Well, the the heirs said that they went to him because they, he was recommended by his by the original collector. Well, he was the head of the um, uh, national uh, the ASDA, yeah. right? The American Stamp Team. How, how can, you know a prestigious group? So you know you go to him, and I I have been involved where district attorneys have called me twice. And both times they were that somebody sold a, or somebody bought a collection and uh, underpaid the person. And so I've, I know of two of these cases where the district attorney actually contacted us to be expert witnesses. And, of course, these never go to court. You know, it would just be too expensive to defend yourself. So they, they obviously settle out for something. But uh, I remember one was a... Uh, lady sold her collection for a thousand bucks and i was talking with the district attorney and i go you know stamp dealers that may have been he may have given her all his money you know here you can have everything i've got here a thousand bucks uh and if it's worth more i would love to give you more but i simply don't have it and so i kind of feel bad for the people but on the other side, I mean, if it was malicious, if if they could prove that John Fox actually knew that he was way lowballing, because I also know some dealers today who lowball. I know a person who bought a mint never hinged duck stamp collection for face value. So it happens. I I was not there, but uh, I know a dealer in, in California who bought an eight thirty four. $5 sheet for half face value because he said these stamps aren't good for postage anymore. <laughs> and just tell people what an 834 is and that's how much it's worth. That's, that's, that's the $5 1938 high value. And uh, they easily sell for 25 bucks each and it was a sheet of 100 So, ah, yeah. So he paid what? The $12 and 12 $250. Yeah. That's a $500 sheet face. Yeah. 250 bucks. 
Well, what is your obligation if a modern duck sheet comes in that's maybe 10 years old? What would you pay for it? Well, that's the whole thing in the legal system. If you are a professional and you're dealing with a non-professional, you have to be fair with them. If you're a professional dealing with another professional, cards are on. You know, all, all bets are off. You can do whatever you want. Well, that's why I like unreserved public auctions because I have no responsibility to anybody. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going there and I'll pay fair market value, which is... Which is a leak, which is actually a real estate term, fair market value. Yeah, which is a joke in real estate too, because there's, that's what uh, is killing uh, open door right now, and uh, some of the other uh, companies that started up to flip houses, because uh, the totally off the subject, but they would say, okay, the average house in this market is $250,000. So we'll pay $235,000 and make 15,000 on each one. They go, well, yeah, the average house is 250. They range from 225 to 275. You're getting all the 225 ones and paying 235 because the 275 ones, they don't sell for 235. And uh, that's sort of what drove them. You know, I don't think they're out of business, but they certainly aren't doing well. And it's the same thing with stamp collecting. You know, if you go in and you're buying collections, you got to know what you're doing because um, taking the $5 stamp, you know, they range in value. You can get a grade 100, and I think they're 500 bucks. Or you can get an ungraded one, which is okay, for 25 bucks, and you can probably get a hinged one for 15 or less. But the... uh, Ability to come back at a person and say, ah, you underpaid me. That's, you know, I've never been happy with that. I hope people, you know, are fair. Well, look at the uh, Perf 12 coils. If if you're going to buy a collection of Perf 12, you know, mint coils, you know, you're going to assume as a dealer that they're basically fake. Because so many of them are fake. But if you happen to purchase a collection and they happen to be all real just not certified and you get them certified and then you and then you sell them and 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 the and the heir sees that you you know that you paid a thousand and sold them for you know twenty thousand you know do they have a case yeah that's a really good question i i heard a story um firsthand uh, back in um um 80 was it 86 that they had the um, international show. Mm-hmm. And this was back when we were, when I was just getting started on Western Express covers. And um, a friend of mine went to the show and bought three or four um, covers from a dealer that were Nevada Expresses that we'd never seen before. Never, didn't know they existed. And some of them even had certs. And um, he said while he was sitting there, another dealer that he knew came up, started thumbing through the, there were two boxes of these, started thumbing through it and told the dealer, I'll buy both boxes (laughs) at the prices marked. (laughs) (laughs) And the other dealer goes, oh, you know, I just went in the, because of the show, I'd had those in the, 
storeroom for 20 years. I guess I should have taken a closer look at them before I brought them. (laughs) (laughs) So even stamp dealers, like you said, another professional expert, can make a mistake. And um, uh, uh, somebody else who's coming along can see, oh, there's more value there. And I think that that's the other side of that coin. If you're taking advantage of somebody who should know better, well, the other I, thing I guess that's not taking advantage. But if you get your deal from somebody who's a professional and has set a prize, that's one thing. Yeah. If it's if it's grandma and she's trying to sell her gr- husband's collection to you, you better be a little more compassionate and fair. Well, that's <laughs> one of the things is. Uh, you know, you better let your heirs know what your collection is worth Yeah, on both sides because, you know, we're bothered by, and I really do mean the word bothered, bothered by a lot of people who say, um, my grandfather died and he had this stamp collection. And I go, okay, just tell me what book it's in. And he, they go, it's not in a book, it's, uh, you know, it's in envelopes in a shoebox. And go, well, guaranteed there's nothing there. I mean, that's not how stamp collectors collect stamps. You know, it's like saying, oh, there's a car. And you go, well, how much is it worth? And you go, well, where is it? And you go, well, it's in the bottom of a lake. Yeah. And you go, well, <laughs> I'm not thinking that it's very valuable, and that's why the person didn't put it in their will or anything like that. But there is one uh, story from, this is from quite a while ago. And a person had a global album, just like Lotar. Uh, I told this story about Lotar, how he has a global album. It goes to 1940, and he wants to put every stamp that has a picture. If it's not pictured, he doesn't care. So, you know, there are short sets and everything like that in there. If it's pictured, he wants that stamp. So there was a fellow who had one of those. And this collection is very valuable. I mean, you fill up a global album, you've easily, easily went into five figures. And uh, the family had no idea. And they wanted to buy him a stamp. And so they took his album without him knowing it, took it down to the stamp shop and said, here, you know, find, we got 25 bucks. Uh, find a stamp to put in here. And uh, the dealer actually said it was lucky that he found a stamp in there that was $25 because everything was higher value than that. And the family had no clue of what it was worth. So, you know, this guy, unfortunately, let's say he passes away, you know, the family takes it down and the dealer says, oh, yeah, a thousand bucks. Here you go. You know, that's a that's a big hit. So, you know, I fault Fox less i think than i fault the uh heirs and i definitely fault the legal system i don't think that that's a fair thing to do to come back at somebody and say oh you bought it for too cheap was his was his uh fakery discovered in his lifetime yes so he suffered the consequences professionally and yes legally and everything else mm-hmm. was he sued or anything did oh he yeah he, he i understand his other problems he happened to like the horses that's not a winning. That's not a winning. Uh oh, you, you mean you mean like sexually? No, as, as, <laughs> as in as in horse as in betting on horse racing. I was going to say topical collecting. And, and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then for other, some reason, I missed the other. And, and, and the other thing I was to, the other thing I was told, but I I don't I can't verify this is that I understand he owed a lot of money to people you shouldn't owe money to. Yeah, I owe money to people I shouldn't owe money to. 
They, they're called Chase and um, <laughs> no, I'm talking, Wells Fargo. No, I'm talking about the people that charge uh, 3% a week. <laughs> 3% a week uh, with the penalty being broken legs. Or more. <laughs> but I, I, the other thing that I've, I'm very critical about, I certainly got his sales for the last 10 years of his life. I attended four of them. Um, I bought some things that were not recognized that he, but on the other hand, I know he made fake private vending coils. Um, I know he made, uh, there were lots of, there were lots of, the problem was you had to be a knowledgeable person to, to buy in his sale. If you, he would let you buy it and put it on extension though, which I thought was very interesting. I have a question. When you bought it at his auction, at that time when you were bidding, did you know that he was faking stuff? Oh, it, 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 I had been a, I had been, that had been taught me back, that had been taught to me back in 1977. So you bought from a crook? No, I bought from, a, I bought from an auction. I bought any public, unreserved public auction, I bought things that I thought were genuine, and I told him I'm going to put them on extension and send them to the PF, and he said fine. No. And a couple of them, a couple of them brought a lot more money when they were sold 10 or 15 years later in, from somebody's collection. Yeah. But, well. but, but on the other hand, I would see some of the counterfeits he would put in his sales, and I just say, "Don't want to touch that." But like every, but like everybody else that runs a public auction, there's there, um, there's going to be good stamps and there are going to be bad stamps, and you just have to go look at them. Well, there was a. Uh, this was very early on when um, I first got involved with PSE. PSE had been running for like 15 years before that. And there was a very old certificate with a U.S. number one with a really, really nice, well-struck, fancy cancel. And the fellow at Ventura Stamp Company, and I forget his name. Alan Katz. Alan, yes. Uh, and he goes, yeah, well, look, you guys don't know what you're doing. And I go, well, I, first of all, I've never seen that stamp. Second of all, it was certified 10 years ago, so that's the prior dudes. But uh, what's wrong with it? And he goes, look how clean it is. And they go, well, yeah, that's an awful nice-looking stamp. And he goes, yeah, well, it's got to be a fox because it's so incredibly well-struck. And they go, oh, okay. Mm, you know, whatever. <laughs> I still don't know whether it was real or fake, but uh, we certified it as real. Well, he's a, all I can say about Alan Katz is he's a very good student, and he's very knowledgeable. No, very. So, And he has handled a number of... He's probably one of the more knowledgeable persons on fancy cancellations. Mm -hmm. And uh, should have probably sent it to him as one of our experts. <laughs> well, one of the problems one of the problems that we have with that is uh, is some of the people who are most knowledgeable are also the uh, they don't want to do that because they don't want to talk about sometimes their own work. Yeah. Well, is Alan Katz still around? Yes. Okay. Shout out to him. I haven't seen him in, I'm going to say, eight years. I haven't seen him. So, See, to me, that that's a very valid point, and that's a starting point of saying, okay, I'm going to take this cover and examine it as if it's fake. Yeah. And now you're trying to prove it to be good because you think it's fake. And that sometimes, by doing it reverse, is actually the way to prove it. Well, one of the things that we have today, which makes life so easy, is the VSC. Yeah. 
I mean, now we, we have the ability to check these things out. I mean, we had a whole bunch of uh, canceled stamps uncovered, fancy cancels, and they were reinforced. And some of them were reinforced very, very well. But you put them in the VSC, and the inks show different. Right. So you see one type of ink, which is the original, and then you should see some other type of ink, and you go, well, that's where the reinforcing is. Yeah, and those were very well struck. And so that was one of the things that caused everybody to be concerned. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I think it's a valid point. But it didn't mean the cover was not real. No, it's just they improved it. It was an improved cover. It wasn't a fake cover. Yeah. And so maybe that your your patient that you were talking about um, that Mr. Katz looked at, maybe that was the case there. Maybe it was just um, uh, a well-struck example. Well, this was also at the very beginning of PSE. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were people who liked PS, PF and hated PSE because PF was uh, – PF was it, and PSE is the new guy, new guy, the up-and-comers who don't know anything. So uh, I think there was a bit of criticism based on just being the new kids on the block. Like yeah. I said, this was a long time ago. Anything else? Well, there are other there are other famous um, faking stories that can be told. Lawsuit-wise. Um, well, there's that, uh, there's that 1966 book that was published by the American Philatelic Society called The Yucatan Affair. Oh, yeah. About uh, that, uh, that faker. He's a European, but he was uh, based in Merida, Mexico, named Raul de Thuane. And uh, one, of the things that, one of the things that he uh, liked to fake were really rare canals on stamps. So he actually faked a little... He actually faked uh, a little... little uh, um, I had a fake uh, Canals on number 15, which would be, a, as if it was real, it would catalog about $10,000 a block. And on the back, it was written in Indie Ink Collection Dr. Leroy. So that's, but that, that's a... Sparati. Sparati was, uh, was taken to court. Yeah, I was going to say there was a trial there. Yeah. Yeah, he was actually going to go to jail for a long time for, for, uh, for, um, uh, uh, smuggling stamps from Spain into France, yep. and uh, and he was going to go to jail for thirty years. So he proved that this, that he could make those stamps overnight. Yeah, that they, they were fake stamps. <coughs> yeah, he proved that they were fake stamps, and therefore he wasn't smuggling in stamps. He was pieces bringing of in pieces of art. And it got him off the hook. Him proving that his stamps were fake got him out of jail. Yeah, he only served like six months in jail rather than thirty years. Yep. Because the amount of money that were that was it was tens of thousands of francs. And I know a famous French well, expert. Wartime too, and right. so there was a lot of that es- espionage type right, of idea. Right. But a very famous French expert testified for the prosecution. A guy with the last name of Brune. And he was embarrassed because because uh, Sparati made them prove that he could make them. And then later on, the BPA bought everything Sparati had and printed books out of, out of the the fakes, yeah. now, of which very few books still remain. Yeah, those books are now what uh, a full set of them is what twenty five or fifty thousand. Oh no 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 no! Far more than that. Uh, 
No, 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 far more than that. Uh, I think the last one sold for like eighty-five grand. Well, I uh, bought a Fournier book. Those are going for like ten or twelve, and those are obvious fakes. Well, not obvious. You know, you still need the references, but the uh, the value of fakes is uh, significant. But yeah, all of uh, Sparati's books uh, got broken up because people wanted the individual stamps. Right. Same with Fournier. So there's, so there's uh, famous fakes on famous Sparati fakes, which are all lithographed, of very famous stamps like the New York Provisional Nine X One, and there's the famous so-called Sparati Spur on the uh, number, the fake number twos, which is actually worth more than an actual number two. Right, they're now, they're now worth like fifteen hundred dollars based on the the gross realizations. Yeah, the fake is worth more than the real. And actually, then, there's quite a few. Sparatis where the fake is worth more than the real. And yeah. I'm not talking about like when you did like the $10 stamps from Uruguay. And then he made uh, fake Confederate States number nines, the yep. TENs. Yeah. And he made uh, fake Hawaii number 22s. And one thing that was very clever at is he took he took a Hawaii stamp that had a genuine cancel on it, a two-center, and bleached it all out and then printed a 50-center on top of it. I found one of those years ago. Oh, speaking about that, we got a collection of, well, not a collection, we got a group of German stamps. They were like double overprints and uh, one overprint inverted and stuff like that. And one of the cool things that we have here is, you know, with the VSC and other things, we can tell that these were all printed on laser jet printers. Hmm. And uh, that's something that, John Fox has to deal with too now is you know we can tell uh, the different ways that things are printed not just you know engraved versus lithograph. What was awesome about some of those stamps is they had genuine guarantee marks on them. Oh yeah, they were expertized and they had fake expertizing marks. They had fake the ex. No, some of the expertizing marks are real though because um, the, the, the stamps were very few. Yeah, what what they would do is they'd get a prior expertized stamp and then put a fake overprint on it. Right. So it looked like they were expertizing the rare overprint. Right. And, yes. and what it was is, you know, they, hey, okay, yeah, that's a, uh, here, it's real, it's never hinged. That's why Mark's 1933 certificate really isn't any good. <laughs> <laughs> listen to the last episode. Actually, last episode is uh, me talking about inflation. And listen to the episode before that one. Yeah. Enjoy. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our brand new spanking address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas, Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. <laughs> because you don't put that on the letter. Oh. Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun, but now the time has come.
to go. If this silkon was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.